Welcome, TTB community. I am Bob Domena, and here with me, as always, is the magnanimous Elliot Shibley. Oh, I like that. It's a good one, right? That is a good one. Uh, so we've said this before, and we do really mean it. Um, we know there's a lot of different ways to entertain and fill your time up with fun things. So it means a lot to us that you're listening to us talking every week uh, about different travel topics that we really enjoy. Uh, so thank you so much. And you've been a huge help in growing this and your biggest advocate in getting new listeners. Yeah, thank you. And in addition to that, we have been collaborating with Aldison from Minivan of Memories. His platform is amazing for the average traveler who may want to write up a uh, write up their experience in blog form and not have the platform to do that. You can provide it to him and sign up as a passenger. And this way your your story gets seen by other like-minded travelers. And you could read about other uh, like-minded traveler stories that are already posted on there. I have one posted on there. Definitely check it out. Uh, you can yeah. go on minivanofmemories.com or just check out his Instagram page, Minivan of Memories. Very cool stuff. Yep. Good travel inspiration. So today's episode is brought to you by Circle Void. Do you have inventions that you pitch to your family at Christmas and they just nod and listen? Did you create something that nobody wants and will never sell? Then look no further than Circle Void, where you can list all of your crap that no one will beg, ever. You've got an army of tag beanie babies, a vintage Skechers collection, non-holographic Pokemon cards, and you still have those creepy Furbies? Really? At Circle Void, you, you can design and develop a very confusing and complicated website where you can list all of your hoarding possessions that will never turn a profit. Circle Void. Make nothing happen. <laughs> all right. How much stuff do you have listed on Circle Void? A lot. A lot of yeah. worthless stuff, yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, all right. So today's guest is a longtime friend of mine, and our conversation today puts a very unique spin on the topic of travel. Uh, he has seen the world, but not in the way a lot of us in the travel community are used to. His primary reason for travel was part of the ongoing war between the United States and countries throughout the Middle East. He has spent 10 years with the United States Army, and in that time was, to de was deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. And so in our conversation today, we focus on his experiences in combat, experiences with the local populations, and the emotional and physical facets of entering war. So, without further introduction, please give a very warm welcome to my friend, Mike Maggio. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Mike, thank you for taking the time to join us on our podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I want to start by saying thank you for your service. You and I have been friends since before you joined the military, and then we've actually gotten a lot closer since you've been back. In the years you've been back, we've been hanging out a ton. Um, we've talked about your military career a lot over the years, but I don't think we ever got into it in regards to travel. So this is going to be an incredible uh, story to hear. Um, so let's just jump right in. When did you join? So I joined uh, August 16th of 2007 was my initial okay. enlistment. I ended up shipping to basic training. Like eight days later. So can I ask, um, why why did you join the military in the first place? So that was kind of, I read that when you guys sent it to me, and it was kind of a hard question to answer. But 
there's like multiple reasons. I had went to community college, hated it. I was working a job making like $9 an hour. <laughs> so I always wanted to join. Um, I'd actually kind of attempted when I was like 17, but my parents knew I wanted to do a combat job and they were like, no, we're not signing any paperwork. So I kind of put it on hold for a while and then tried to get in a union, didn't work out. So I was like, you know what? I drove by the recruiting station literally every day to get to work. And finally, one day after work, I just stopped in. Uh, I talked to the Marines, talked to the Army and decided to go with the Army. It's it's always an interesting question to be asked. Um, my my dad was in the Navy, and his primary reason for joining the Navy was to pay off college. And it's actually a, a large majority of the why people end up joining the military or branches thereof. Um, and then, so you said you joined the Army branch, and where was your first deployment then? Um, so... I actually, when I joined in 07, that was right when the surge was going on. So Iraq was like the big hot topic on the news. That was where all the heavy, heavy fighting was going. So when I joined, I wanted to do a combat job. I wanted to get into combat immediately. And I actually went to a unit in Fort Lewis, Washington that actually just got back from a 15-month deployment. So I kind of got the opposite. I knew we weren't going anywhere for at least 15 months because you have to, however long you're in country, you have to be back for that same amount of time. So we started training up. Uh, we trained up for about two years and then we went to Iraq in 2009, 2010. Okay. So you're in Iraq in 2010. And I'm trying to remember what was in the news back then. Um, it's hard to remember, but what was your experience like landing in Iraq in a war zone? Uh, your initial impressions? So it was interesting. So 2009 was when they really took the country back over. Maybe like end of 2008-ish, I think, was when I really, it really wasn't like a combat zone per se. A lot of the heavy fighting was done. It was just, it was more training up the Iraqi army by that point. Still dangerous. There was still IEDs, but not a lot of like heavy, you know, city assault, stuff like that. So so that's after the death of Saddam Hussein then? Oh, yeah. That was when they invaded, 2003. I think he had been hung in what, like 05, maybe something like that. I know he had, he had uh, evaded capture for a long time, but that was way before I got there. It was actually kind of like two wars in one country. So there was that initial evasion, uh, defeating the Iraqi army, finding Saddam Hussein, and then the uh, you know all the the civil war started after that. All the Islamic extremists started pouring in the country, so that was kind of two wars in one country. And I kind of miss both. Both we were there really training up the Iraqi army. That's really what we were. Our job was yeah. Uh, prior to your deployment, had you been outside the country at all? Um, just a vacation to like Cancun. I'd actually, one of the funny things, I'd only shot a shotgun one time, one round before I joined the army. That was my only experience with a weapon ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. so, so joining the, the military was arguably your first time really overseas, not at, at, in like Cancun and traveling. And it was also the first time firing a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, every traveling alone, you know, what I mean, even just getting to the airport by myself, uh, 
traveling to Georgia, traveling, and once I passed basic training, traveling to Washington State. You know, I was 18 at the time, and it was really, you know, big boy rules. Like, you need to find your way to the base. You need to find your way here, there. So, That'll definitely. Make you grow up really fast. Yeah, exactly. Which is a good thing. So, yeah. Oh, so one thing. I'm sorry. You asked why I joined. I forgot to say. Um, I was watching a documentary sitting on my ass one day, and I think they were Marines, but a guy got shot and killed. And he was like, he had just turned 19. And I remember sitting there thinking, I was like, you know, why am I special? You know, I mean, there's guys over there fighting, serving their country, and I'm sitting around doing nothing. You know, that was kind of the thing that motivated me, you know, to to finally make the jump and join. So it's an incredible jump. And I going back to, you know, your the whole um, the transition, you fly from Philadelphia, I'm assuming that's the, the airport near us to Georgia. I always wondered what it was like for someone in the military to actually get on that plane and go overseas. Uh, it, is, it's a military aircraft, correct? So are uh, you talking about when you flew to Iraq for the first deployment? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted, I'm, I'm asking, I guess about the, the, the aircraft that takes you from Georgia. Cause I know there's a big base there, right? To, do you go directly to the middle East? And what is that? atmosphere like you know with the other military members as you're going into what you all know is a is a combat zone so it's actually pretty crazy the way you get over there so i was by that time i was stationed in fort lewis in washington state so i was on the west coast so we took actually civilian chartered i think like a 747 something like that and you fly all the way from there to like new york refuel and then we fly across overseas to germany or ireland and then from there, you'll fly into either Kuwait or Kazakhstan, I believe it is, Kyle'stan. It's just north of like Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. So that's where you actually flip from a civilian plane to a military bird. Um, anytime you fly into a war zone, it has to be in a military aircraft. You can't fly into war zones in civilian aircraft. So that's okay. where you get onto the, you know, C, I think they were C-17s, uh, something like that. And it's really crazy when you fly in and they go to land, they do, I believe it's called like a combat landing or something. It feels like the plane's going to crash. I mean, they go like completely nose up and then nose straight down for X amount of time and then lift up again. And then it just kind of slams on the tarmac. It's pretty oh, insane. Wow. What? Wait, what is the, what is the purpose of that? Well, hovering time, I guess, you know, a normal plane, you kind of hover in and it lands real slow, but all yeah. that time that you're hovering low, I guess you're, you can get shot down, you know, aircraft fire, even like the non-missiles and stuff. So they kind of oh. do that. They kind of do that thing super quick. So they go super high, low real quick, and then kind of level out and land like as quickly as possible. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you think about a commercial airline, uh, uh, an airline landing, it's a very predictable flight pattern. You know, it's a very slow, steady descent onto the runway. I guess if you're trying to shoot one down, it's pretty easy to predict where that airline is. During that time, yeah. It's drastically slower. It's within kind of almost small arms range, I guess you could say. Um, It's pretty insane. They tell you, kind of give you a warning, but... uh, it's pretty cool every time you do it. And they're not like small planes. I mean, a C-17 is like your average size, like civilian plane you get on to fly around the country. So like, it's it's a big plane and it does pretty are those the uh, crazy. No, those are the huge ones. I think oh, those, those are, are like the, the C-5s or something. I, I don't know the okay. nomenclature too well. 
the C17, I believe, is the one that like replaced the C130. It's bigger. It's got a what jet motors instead of the the um, propellers. Yeah. Okay. But it's pretty big. It's big. I think they fit like 150 guys in there plus um, like vehicles or a ton of equipment stuff like that. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot. But I would imagine that would be a very interesting experience. It's a good thing they kind of prepped you by flying a few times before you know doing the nose dive and then straight down. In all honesty, because we had before we went to Iraq, they had told us like, "Hey, it's dangerous and all that," but guys are very honest. And I was serving with guys who had had three, four tours by that time, and they they were like, "Listen, we're it's it's not going to be war." So that I was more anxious flying from Philadelphia to Georgia to go to basic training. To be honest with you, for that deployment, okay, Afghanistan was a whole nother beast. But, yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get into Afghanistan, but. I, I, Right now, so Iraq, you land in Iraq and you have this newly, I mean, liberated country. Let's use that term, I guess, loosely. Um, but you, what was your experience like with the people there? Did you have interaction with the civilians at all? And I know you, you trained some of the, the military there. What was that like as well? Um, so they were the uh, every platoon got broken up and we all had like three three or four different iraqi army or police units we would go and train with um they really just wanted at that time we had switched from the american government paying for all their stuff and supplying these armies to their government was and their government you know at at that time i don't know about now was strife with you know all sorts of um at the higher levels, they were just kind of stealing everything and stuff like that. So it wasn't trickling down. So they were kind of mad at us. We would show up and they'd be like, we don't want to train. We just want fuel. We want replacement parts, all these different things. So it was pretty difficult. They're very nice, though. I mean, we always kept guards up um, because of the insider threat, which is always going on type thing there. But some units were eager to learn. Eager to learn. And we were trained with them. And then some were, were like, nah, we're special. They would always say, we're special forces. We don't need your help. That was their like, <laughs> thing. <laughs> so what was your impression? I mean, you, you had traveled to Cancun prior. And that was more of a leisure recreational trip. And now you're in this entirely different region of the world with a very different purpose. What was your impression? And how did your perception of travel change at that point? It was just, it was a different, like you said, it was a completely different type of travel. You know, it wasn't uh, for leisure. It was for work, I guess you could say, you know what I mean? So even just going like your mindset's going to be different. I imagine too, just for people who travel around for business, you know, when they get on a plane to go for a business trip, it's a lot more, it's a lot different. You know, I'm sure they do research on maybe the companies they're going to visit, stuff like that. I did the same thing. I read some books on like Muslim culture, um, history, Muslim culture, stuff like that. Some histories of Iraq, just to kind of gain some knowledge. Um, they taught us some like basic words and different things to, uh, what they speak in Afghan, in Iraq, they spoke, uh, Arabic and then also some Farsi, I believe, stuff like that. So we could, some basic sentences, stuff like that. But the Americans had been there since 2003. So a lot of them spoke like enough English that you could like buy some food from them or stuff like that. But the people were very nice. They just seemed to be caught kind of like a rock in a hard place. Like they didn't want, you know, sheer law and all that like that. 
but at the same time, we did seem like a Christian invading country, which goes back to, you know, the Middle Ages. So Very few people like to share their details. And what was it like when you first landed? Um, you mentioned that you just kind of, I guess you were in a military convoy that just went directly to the base. So you didn't have much interaction with civilians. But did you ever like learn the language? And you mentioned earlier that you kind of went shopping to get stuff at the market. What was all of that like? What were those interactions? The um, interactions with the people were, we had an interpreter who were, they were all actually, um, what's the, Kurdish? A lot of our interpreters are Kurdish who were absolutely amazing. Um, But we would go in, like say we would go to like an Iraqi compo, a compound or police or military, there's usually like some type of falafel stand or something outside, you know, so we'll go out there and bring the interpreter with us and maybe purchase some falafels, which is just like a, it's like a flatbread. It's delicious, but we would go and buy those. <laughs> and then everyone just seemed pretty nice. A lot of kids run around everywhere. Um, I know one of the pictures I sent, you know, put my helmet on one of the kids. We took pictures with them, hung out. Uh, we brought soccer balls. That was a big thing. People would send us soccer balls. We would give it to the kids. But everyone seemed very nice. I mean, you don't really get into a deep conversation except for like talking to the commanders. And they always would say the area is great. Everything's wonderful. We just want money. So there we didn't we didn't really in Iraq. We didn't really meet with the civilian populace as much because at that time the fighting was kind of over. So it wasn't, we call it a coin operation, counterinsurgency. So part of that is like, that goes back to like Vietnam and it's, you know, you go into the villages, you live there, you communicate with them because you want to get them on your side. That was kind of done with by the time we got to Iraq. So more of, like I said, we were just kind of training the Iraqi soldiers. That was kind of our, our job. Okay. It's not the experience I was, um, I was expecting. Yeah. And it's, it seems like it was the experience. It wasn't the experience you were expecting either, Mike. So there is a caveat to all this, right? So when we first got there, there was another platoon. They were driving over this bridge that Al-Qaeda had blown up years ago. And the American army had put um, like a metal trussle across it. Trussle bridge, I think that's what it's called. So one side of the bridge was still completely gone. Um, some, uh, one of our platoons, they saw, uh, ID on, on the bridge, which was actually guarded. So it shouldn't have been there, but there's an ID on the bridge. So they turned to kind of get to the other side of the road and, a, a misstep with the driver. I don't know the specifics of what happened, but the guy actually drove off of the bridge and the vehicle dropped about 90 feet and flipped upside down. We actually lost, we lost two guys then, two guys was close with one, relatively close with the other. And then, um, then like seven more guys were, were very injured enough to evacuate and send them home. So that was kind of, that was actually very in the beginning. That was only, I think a couple, two months in maybe something like that. So we knew, you know, we got to be careful and not be complacent. Wow. Right. That's that's an important point. Um, that you know you're having this good experience, and that you're you're meeting these people, and you're you're you know, you you have the opportunity to go to falafel stands, but at the same time you can't, and I'm sure you didn't. You 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 have to realize that you know the situation that you're actually in, and that in a moment's notice it can it can change. Yeah, and we had 
and, and at the end, so I went to basic training with a guy who went to the same unit as me. He was in a different company, but same unit. He actually, so they, there was enemy there, but they weren't actively engaging us, but they knew when American forces were changing in and out. So when you're changing out, they like to hit you. And when uh, you were uh, coming in, they like to hit you. So when we were getting ready to leave, we were only less than a month, I believe. They got a tip that there was uh, weapons in a home. It ended up being a setup. And when they got to the house, so a striker's a big, we drove around the strikers. It's a big eight-wheeled vehicle with the ramp in the back. So as soon as the guys dropped the ramp and started walking out, a vehicle-borne IED pulled up and blew up. And it actually killed a guy I was in basic training with. I believe it killed one more and then injured everybody else. So like they, I mean, there was enemy there. We, our unit luckily never got hit like that, but that happened right at the end. How does that impact you? I mean, it, it really, it really pisses you off because you know, it's just, it's sad first off because there was a person driving that vehicle, you know what I mean? So the Islamic extremists probably paid some really poor guy from X country you know, to go drive this vehicle and kill himself and kill Americans. So it sat on that end. But the other thing was like, you kind of get that the war's over. Why are we even here type feeling, which is not a good feeling for soldiers. It's different if you're fighting and, you know, you're there doing your job, but just training troops and not seeing the enemy ever. You know, they shot mortars at us, stuff like that, but we never actually seen anybody. So it really pisses you off because you're getting... You know, you're losing people, and but there's no enemy to fight against. So it is pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. That it has to be hard. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying it. I'm thinking that it could have been hard to separate the good people from the bad people, you know, and, and realize that, you know, when you go to the falafel stand, there are people that actually, you know, might appreciate your presence. And then you also have people in the same country trying to kill you. It's interesting. It's, um, that's where it comes into You'll hear some, I'll just call them idiots, like, who are kind of racist, like, oh, Muslims are bad. and It's just a religion, you know what I mean? I'm sure there's some Christians in this country that have a lot of values and different things that I don't believe or, you know, believe are important. It's kind of the same thing there. So, like, and they're not, there is active participants, you know what I mean? There is people that are generally bad and they want to see these people in power. But a lot of them are just, like I said, like poor Poor people from different countries, you know, they get paid to put an ID in the road, even though, you know, I mean, they probably don't feel one way or the other. So they're kind of just rocking a hard place. The really bad yeah. ones, those are the guys that like SF and SEALs and those are the ones that they go after, the uh, high value targets and stuff like that. So we're, I mean, I felt, I seen more of that in Afghanistan because, We'll talk about that later, but like you go into a village, everything will be great and wonderful. You'll talk to the village elder. You go to that village two days later and we step on an IED on the way in and an ambush. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you're you're really pissed at the people, you know, hey, we're giving you this money. But then you talk to them and they're like, they came in here and threatened to kill the entire village unless we did this and didn't tell you about it. You know what I mean? So it's they're not bad, but uh, rocking a hard place. I think I think this is a good point to where we can transition. So 
you know, Iraq, you had one experience and then I, you know, obviously we've talked about this before and this is something that you've told me you had a completely different experience in Afghanistan. Uh, it was, it was active, right? I mean, an active war zone, not that Iraq was, but I guess, I mean, I, maybe I'm not using the correct terms, but it was, you went to combat, right? And, um, I guess, I guess let's get into your experiences in Afghanistan. Yeah. So in Iraq, I actually, I did a year there and I never earned uh, a CIB, it's called the combat infantryman badge. So that's where you actually are engaged by the enemy. You engage and maneuver on them, you know, attempt to kill the enemy. So I did a whole year in a combat zone and I actually never fired a weapon at an enemy. So Afghanistan was drastically different. <laughs> we flew in the Kyle stand to get there, which at that time was in the middle of winter, which is Southern Siberia, I believe. And it was like negative 30 when we hit the ground. When we went to Iraq, oh we flew into Kuwait. It was probably 130 degrees or something when we hit the ground. So it was the polar opposite. It's a 160 degree swing. <laughs> yeah, it was completely different. We got there and freezing. And then we flew in Afghanistan. We were kind of southern Afghanistan, so it wasn't as bad winter. It was probably 30s, 40s. Pretty cold, but not absolutely terrible. But I believe my second day in Afghanistan, I earned my combat badge. I believe it was the second day. So there was a firefight wow. the day before. I shot off the Hesco barriers a little bit, but that doesn't count. The next day was our turn to do a patrol. We patrolled out to a village, talked to the elder, and then on our way back, we got hit in an ambush. So that was my, I earned it the second day. Yeah. <laughs> so drastically different. And I, I mean, I'm familiar with the process of talking to the village elders, but can you explain what that that is to people who are listening and may not understand that. Yeah, I have no idea what it is. So we were doing a, we call them left seat, right seat rides. So the old unit is getting ready to leave and we got there. So there's usually about a two week span of where basically both units are at the same location. Um, and we do right seat, left seat rides. So they take us out the first couple of days and they'll take out like the leadership. So like me, I'll go out with their unit, like me, my platoon leader, um, you know, the officer, myself, all the senior NCOs in a platoon, we'll go out with their platoon, kind of show us what they do to stay alive, how they, you know, operate. And then we'll switch. Their leadership will come out with our platoon. So that one was actually, we were with their platoon. We got hit on the way back. Nobody was injured, um, returned a bunch of fire, called in the helicopters. They left and we went back to the base. But when we go in, so they'll talk to the village elder and just get an idea it was coin, corner and counterinsurgency. So we'll talk to them. Hey, what do you need in this village? Do you need medication? Do you need food? Um, just stuff like that. Try to win them on our side. It's like a respect thing, isn't it? Like if you, you go and you talk to their elder and you kind of, yeah, just um, massage their ego, right? And, you know, hey, we're here to help. Kind of. It's like their culture. So each each town is kind of like their own little tribe and they don't really see like a hierarchy of the government. There's never really one there. There was a Taliban, but they like, you know, they had the city centers, but you go out where we were kind of rural area. It was more farming. So each like village elder, he would kind of run that, that town. So he, so we go and talk to him. You got to win him over in order to kind of pacify the entire area. So that's where we would go. Go and talk to them. Hey, do you need a well built? Do you need a road built? How's your crops growing? Do you guys need fertilizer? Just different things like that. Can you can you remind me um, the difference? Was it the same war in Afghanistan or was this a different series of 
battles. So technically, for the military, all of it falls under the war on terror, global war on terror, Iraq and Afghanistan. So they're different operations. So Iraq was Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Afghanistan was Operation Enduring Freedom. So technically two different campaigns, but all under the scope of one war. So technically, like I didn't serve in two wars. Like you'll okay. see some some of the older guys, maybe they were in like World War or let's say like Korea and Vietnam. Techn- that's two different wars. Technically myself, I was in two different campaigns, not two different okay. wars. And why why Afghanistan? Why did it change from Iraq to Afghanistan? Where the heavy fighting was? Yeah. That's a little above like what strategically I think personally, I think it was we put all the resources and money into Iraq and kind of Afghanistan went by the wayside for a while and the Taliban just kind of grew stronger and stronger and then started openly, openly attacking Americans again, trying to take the country back. So, but the thing about, so the two, two provinces that are always in combat there, no matter what year it was, was Kandahar province where I was and then Helmand province where the Marines are. And that always was in fighting pretty much since the dawn of time i think but so that's where they grow their crops that's where they grow marijuana and poppy and all that ah yeah. that's why they fight for it so bad okay so the kandahar province is just north of pakistan correct yeah i think the bottom of it actually borders pakistan i believe yeah. helmet helmet and uh, helmet and kandahar province are right next to each other and they both border to the south um pakistan okay so I want to go off on a very small tangent and we'll come right back. And that, I mean, it sort of brings me to the significance of these countries. As far as a travel destination goes, to me personally, they're incredibly interesting. They're known as the cradle of civilization. Mike, you and I have talked about this before, but they have incredible archaeological significance. The structures there and the history there is incredible. And I mean, in a different situation, in, in a world without war, this would be a hot spot for travelers and archaeologists. And it's really unfortunate that you know, we can't visit it because it, it is so fascinating. But anyway, I mean, that's that's just something yeah. I we could probably go on. A- it does because it has the so Mesopotamia, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates. Yep. Um, and that really, I mean, this was like history from elementary school and high school. But that's really where a lot of civilization was started just because it was so arid. And you got these two rivers and civilization just kind of blossomed from that. And then you got the uh, green crescent, which is the very small fertile strip uh, that kind of cuts across the Tigris and Euphrates. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of history there. And if it weren't for conflict, I think a lot of people would be interested in traveling, much like Egypt or even Rome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder what's under there too, what hasn't been excavated, what we don't even know exists and may never know exist, at least in our lifetime. Or what hasn't been preserved. So when we were, yeah, when we were in Iraq, we were, Bakuba's like just south of the Tigris River. I mean, I remember driving there one day and our interpreter was talking about, I don't remember specifics. He was just talking about the history of it. But yeah, he said the same thing. He's like, this is like the, where civilization started. And actually Bakuba, the city we were just outside of, I believe at one point was the capital for like um, one of the caliphates, the Muslim caliphates, I believe. I know Baghdad was one, but I think even before that, like Bakuba was actually a major hub because it's right at the, it's the Tigris goes through it. And I believe there's one more river. So that like area was like extremely fertile. And there was actually like an ancient civilization that kind of ran it. 
and you would see buildings that are like crumbled and maybe you could just see like walls and a little bit of the foundations and you just look at it and have to think like how old is that and that's you can see on the surface so imagine what's under it easily built on top of another building so something under it could date back to basically the beginning of civilization you don't even know so i'm sure there is so much there that yeah yeah we may never know about and it's a true shame but all right so so getting back to your experience there as we've already mentioned it was the complete opposite of iraq so i'm assuming you didn't go to a falafel stand did you get to experience the the culture at all uh, other than the elders you know and trying to swoon them did you experience the culture in any way so actually a lot more than Iraq, and it's kind of interesting. So we actually really felt like we did our job there. So when we got to see a choice city, we would get shot at at our base. Like that's how brazen they were. They didn't care. Like they would expose themselves and shoot at a base full of 140 Americans. So they were actually, they could mass anywhere from 20 to 30 people, which is pretty you always try to fight three to one odds. So if you go out on a patrol with 30 people, that's even odds, one to one, and that's not how we fight. So it was interesting. But after about six months of heavy fighting, we actually pushed the Taliban out of that area. And then we lived in the villages and we actually held like almost like barbecues with them. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy. The one place we actually took over and the locals came back was like one of the worst little towns that had been in Sia Choi. For years. I mean, it was a place that like the SAS had attacked in like the invasion of the war and they got pushed out. Like it had a ton what of history. Is SAS? It's like the, um, the, um, like British special, British special forces. forces yeah. And yeah. that goes, that oh, was okay. way in the beginning, but it was so the creator of the Taliban, Mullah Omar, he was actually born in one of those towns that was within like a stone's throw of where we were. So the Taliban wow. for not only were their crops there, but also it had like, you know, value in that. So they did not want to give up that area. So, but yeah, towards the end, I mean, we literally threw a barbecue at the end. We had security everywhere. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, you had guys with machine guns and vehicles posted all over the place. But yeah, we had like a ton of villagers come in. We had a big like pig roast. It was kind of sh not pig roast. What am I saying? <laughs> like a big <laughs> lamb roast. Sorry. <laughs> That's what I think of when I think of like a barbecue. But no, yeah. it was, uh, we had a bunch no of lambs, a bunch of lambs and different stuff. Yeah. One yeah. of the most American things I ever heard of, of so far, I think now, is us going in, taking over, and then throwing a barbecue. That is the American <laughs> way right there. It was, it was <laughs> insane. But you got to remember, too, I mean, we did that, and then we went out on patrol the next day and got in, like, a serious, probably 30, 40-minute firefight. So, like, it was wow. a strange, almost, like, kind of break in the reality of where we were. Um, it, it was... It was interesting. I don't know. I remember our platoon leader did it. He's like, we're going to do this. And we actually had to go and like get the villagers and bring them in because the Taliban still has a presence and they would threaten them, like stay away from them and all that. But we just went like house to house and we're like, come here. We're, we're cooking food and different stuff. <laughs> it was interesting. But how, how do you handle that emotionally going from, you know, enjoying yourself and having a barbecue to the next day or maybe even later that day you're in a, you know, a very a crazy firefight? It never really, like, even during that kind of thing we did, we rotated guards. So, um, you know, we had, we were doing split ops at that point. So we had like 13, 14 guys on guard and then like 12, 13 guys kind of eating. And then we would switch. So you never really, it never really changed. You're like, I'm about to go back on guard. You put on back 
60 pounds worth of gear, get your weapon, get on top of a roof and bake in the sun or go sit in a vehicle behind a 50 cal. So like, you know where you're at. <laughs> it doesn't really You never change. let your guard down. <laughs> no, no, no. Security's number one. So we always had security. Yeah. So a lot of my understanding of the Iraqi war and the Afghan war are from interpretations through film or TV and preparing for all of the emotions that you're going to experience between getting to know some of the locals, getting to know the people you're fighting with and then them dying. How, how do you deal with that day in and day out? You try to, for me personally, like, and so at this, when I deployed to Afghanistan, I was a squad leader. So I had nine guys directly under me. And then towards the end, we were running split operations. So I believe I was the senior NCO besides the platoon sergeant. So I would go out with the platoon leader and be kind of in control of the 12 to 14 guys. So I don't, when we lost people, always try to put it into perspective, guys. You know, we still got time here. We can kind of, I guess you could say kind of revenge, but not in like a immoral way. You know what I mean? Like, hey, we're still here. You know, the enemy, you know, they killed one of our guys. We still got X amount of time to kill some of them. You know what I mean? Some guys really struggled with it. We did lose some guys to different combat stress. I mean, everyone's everyone's different. So um, I never saw anything immoral. There wasn't any. It's really tough when you build a relationship with someone in a village. And then the next time you go to their house, someone steps on the IED or someone gets shot on the way in. And then you get there and it's like, why didn't you tell us there was an ambush? Or why didn't you tell us there was a bomb there? And they're... They always said the same thing. They were just like, if we tell you, they're going to know and they'll come back and they're going to they're gonna kill me and my family. So it's tough. Wow. Have and you... that was the reality on the ground. I remember when we first got there, before we started patrolling, they went into one of the villages that was somewhere in the area and they cut off the village elder's head because he was helping the Americans or they thought he was helping the Americans. I don't even think he was doing anything. But I mean, that kind of sets the tone for what's going on. You don't have to answer this, but had have you killed anyone in your deployments? So it's really tough. Like their ambushes are really well concealed and, you know, we return fire constantly. I was told that I killed two people with this like large rocket launcher we used to bring around. And I shot an airburst around into a compound and they had told me I killed two people. But I never like, not like a war movie where you kill them and walk up and their bodies are there. Um, I've seen quite a few dead bodies of enemy. And friendlies as well, but yeah, so two, and then we believe we injured or killed probably a couple more. Me personally, maybe two more, something like that. It's not like the movies. <laughs> there's no, no, no. <laughs> there's no muzzle flashes. All you know is the tree line that's ten feet from me. I can hear a maybe twenty feet or so. There's a PKM machine gun just light me up, and the wall next to me is exploding with bullets. You know, it's very hard to pinpoint where you're getting shot at from. <laughs> Helicopters were our saving grace. Helicopters. They allowed us to move. When you returned to the US, did you did you have any like combat stresses or did you feel any differently? Was it hard to acclimate back to kind of life? So I was lucky. I just kind of we knew when we were going, so the unit before us had told our first sergeant. They were can they were talking via email and he told how bad it was. The unit before us got hit really hard. I mean, they had like five killed. I believe another five lost at least one limb. So like we knew we're going to what the military calls a kinetic area. That's where there's an enemy and you are actively engaged. So we knew it. And I tried to 
prepare myself mentally and my soldiers, you know, hey, we're going to see some terrible, terrible things. You know, don't let this define you for the rest of your life type deal. Um, I do understand it, though. I don't have like the after effects of PTSD that I, I know some guys that do. Um, it's it just affects people differently. I know I had for about two weeks, I had that really fear of large groups. Um, any loud noises would kind of bring me back. You know what I mean? But I got lucky after about two, three weeks, it really dissipated for me. I think for a lot of guys who do suffer from PTSD, it doesn't go away. And you can't live on that high stress level when you're not in that environment. It's just going to take its toll on you. When you're there, it keeps you alive. But when you come home, you need to, it needs to slowly go away. That fight or flight response for every single thing, you know? So it, me personally, I was, I felt pretty okay after about probably a month, something like that. I felt pretty, pretty good. I'm glad you're doing well. Did you suffer any kind of physical injuries? Were you shot at all? I was very lucky. I was almost killed me personally three different times. So you get shot at all the time, but it's mostly at a group. When I say three times myself is where they actively singled me out when I was moving through. One time when I was on top of a vehicle, they opened up on me. They missed me, thank God. Another time I was running from like wall to wall and they were actually just completely lighting me up. Luckily, they did not hit me. And then <laughs> you can laugh at this now. <laughs> the third time, Wait. the third time was the scariest. Getting shot at by myself was pretty scary too. But the third time was we were briefing to move to the next compound, and the guy standing next to me was like, I just stepped on something squishy, which means there's a pressure plate under the ground. So we called over EOD, nobody moved. EOD walked over, and there was an ID on the ground. He had actually stepped on on his birthday, by the way. He had just turned 30 that day and I'm oh, standing man. right next to him. So everyone, he cuts, EOD does his little thing. We get, get away from there. He pulls up the ID. It was enough to, it would have probably killed him and it definitely would have took off some of my limbs. So that was the day. And that was only like month three. And I was like, man, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, it's so hard for me to sit here and try to put myself in your shoes. Like it's just. I can't do it. No matter how hard I try to listen to your stories and truly understand what it's like to, to serve in the military and be in these combat situations, I simply can't do it because I just imagine that it, it, it brings on a level of stress and understanding and, I don't know, realization that you just can't grasp without being there. It's, it's exceptional. I, it's hard to I'm, – I'm having trouble putting words to it. It is. It's nothing – I mean – it's weird to say, but like you're never more alive than that moment. I always wanted to be a part of something that like truly tested me to my core. You know what I mean? And fighting like an enemy who's trying to kill you. I mean, it, it just, I came away from it a better person. And we actually saw like really, it changed the whole area. I mean, that area was under the iron grip of like, the Taliban before that. When we left, I mean, people were listening to music, doing all the different things that they could not do under that. So you actually kind of see, you know, qualitative or quantitative, um, you know, pros of everything we went through. So we did actually make a difference there. It was a, it didn't last very long before we left country. It was already back to the same. So, but we did our job. But that wasn't our fault. At that point, we were doing the drawdown. I believe when I deployed, there was like ninety thousand troops there. And when we left, I think there was like 60 and like, you just can't have everybody everywhere. So that was one of the areas they kind of pulled out of. And I believe after it kind of fell back into disrepair. So, oh, 
when you sent us some photos, there's one in particular that I think is just such a great contrast between life and being in the military because you're walking through what looks like a flower field. It's got these beautiful purple flowers. You've got all your gear on. Where was that? So that was in, man, that was Haji Roof. It was called Haji Ruff. And that was actually the most, that was the one we ended up living in. And that was the, that was the bad place. That was the one the interpreters didn't want to go to because every time you go, people get hurt. So, but by the end, we actually controlled that area. But that was actually kind of midway through it, I believe. So the guy who took that picture was a time photographer and we got ambushed like, I want to say like maybe 10 minutes after that photo was taken. So you can wow. actually see that building in the background of it. We actually started heading that way. And once we passed that building about halfway in between, we got lit up pretty bad from the tree line to the backside. <laughs> Nobody was wounded, thank God. But yeah, we got ambushed not long after that. <laughs> so it was pretty intense. Wow. I'm pulling that photo back up because I want to see it again. <laughs> I believe it's right in the background. There should be a building right kind of behind me. I'm not sure the angle he's at because he was kind of looking the opposite way of our direction of travel, I believe, or looking towards our direction of travel. You know, all said and done your time in Afghanistan, can you, how many times were you in an actual firefight? Do you even know? Is it even possible to remember? I don't, we did, we did nine months in the Sia Choi area and then we moved to Spin Boldak, which was down by the border, which... There was an understanding there between the Taliban and the frontier police or whatever. So there was no like combat there. So in that nine months, I, I couldn't even estimate it. I mean, it depends on what we were doing. In the beginning, we would get shot at every single day. Towards the end, it would only be when we did like big patrols to move in the new areas, something like that. But there are always pot shots and different stuff or maybe a mortar. But like major engagements, I don't know. At over 50, maybe 100, I'm not sure. It's really hard to to tell. I think you can actually that's, pull that's up those stats from like the Department of Defense type thing. I, I don't know. I've heard about it. I've never even looked into it. but Because there's reports that get sent up every single day for per area. You know, our commander sends up a report. And all those, I believe, are like public knowledge. And you can actually kind of look up and see um, what was going on, something like that. Right. It's pretty crazy, man. It is. It was. So you mentioned a little intense. bit about how, like, being there, you never felt more alive. How did that change your perspective on life in general, like coming back to the States and kind of returning to a normal American way? I just felt like, for me personally, I was just like, you know what? I've, I've been through that. I, I can do anything except for math, apparently. But, like, I still struggle with math. But, like, <laughs> it just, I don't know. It just changed my whole thing. Even not as much after Iraq, I still kind of felt the same because I wasn't really tested on that level. After Afghanistan, I really felt like I was like, you know, I, if you can do that and, you know, kind of keep your sanity. And one of my proudest moments was all nine of my original guys I deployed with under me. They all came home with no Purple Hearts, no wound at all. Now, I know one or two struggle with some PTSD stuff, but I've kept in touch a little bit over the years. I think everyone's doing good now. We did have a little bit of that on the way home, though. But, um, yeah, all nine of my guys came home, you know, no injuries. And our platoon had one killed. I believe we took seven or eight That's casualties, That's something really like great. that. So, I mean, we got hit. We were in the thick of it as much as possible. So I was really, really proud of that. That's Yeah, that's incredible. 
I I remember something that you and I we we were talking about it one day. Pro- I I don't remember the, the what our conversation actually was, but we were talking about travel, and obviously I love the travel. And I was talking about how I want to see the whole world. And you had said that you really didn't care to do it anymore, and you just were kind of. I I got the impression that you were just happy to be home and had no interest in seeing any more of the world. Is that still the case with you? <laughs> no, no, I I get the bug every once in a while. I'm just a lot like I like to do one big thing a year. Cause it is travel is just tiring me personally. Like, you know what I mean? I, I one big trip a year is kind of my deal. I know some people who are like, I know like yourself, like, you know, I want to be out and about as much as possible. I can never do that. It's too tiring for me. <laughs> I'm more of a, a little bit of a homebody, I guess you could say, but like, I don't know. I just not a huge traveler. <laughs> yeah. If I didn't have to go to work, I don't think I ever would come home. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe once in a while. In your bio, you sent us, and this seems to be really common with a lot of armed forces, is that they're stationed in countries kind of all over the world at different American bases. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the bases that you stayed at um, while you were in the service? So my story is kind of weird, and it's very uh, atypical. Um, I actually was stationed at Fort Lewis for my whole time in like the infantry <laughs> And then I went on recruiting duty after that. So I re-enlisted for what's called stabilization a bunch of times because I fell in love with Washington State. Um, there's everything you want to do there. And once I started salmon fishing, which you can basically do year-round there, I was I was set. I almost stayed there for life. I might go back there eventually. Uh, I love salmon fishing. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, you go there, you go salmon fishing there for bass fishing. And then I think there's like a small amount of season where you can't catch them and then you can just go for trout fishing. So. I loved it. But we did do, in 2008, before we went to Iraq, we went to a thing in Germany called Cooperative Spirit. And that's where a bunch of NATO forces uh, all meet up and we do kind of like war games together and just kind of work with each other. I believe there's Canadians, British, New Zealanders, Australians, uh, German army. And I think that was it. Something like There's quite a few. There's a lot of them. And we went, we trained for about 28 days. There's a big training area there. Um, and then I got to go to Munich for 12 hours. I missed Oktoberfest by literally less than 24 hours. It ended the day before I was allowed to leave post. Oh, man. Uh, and then, uh, but they did a big like beer fest tent on the base. And that's where we really got to meet like all the different armies and hang out and get, get super drunk. <laughs> did you make any foreign friends? Yeah, it was it was strange, you know. Some of them were kind of standoffish. The Canadians were actually the coolest ones. The Australians and the Kiwis and New Zealanders, all them guys were amazing as well. We found the British were kind of standoffish a little bit, but I guess it kind of goes from person to person. Maybe just kind of the ones I met. But yeah, they showed us all their drinking games, especially the Australian guys. They were insane, and all their <laughs> armies are not dry. So like, we're a dry army when we're training and doing that. You can't drink. All the other armies, as long as they weren't out in the field, they were getting drunk every night. So we just hear them, and some people would sneak over and drink some beers with them, stuff like that. So. Oh wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. So we're a dry, dry army, meaning you can't drink at all. No, you can drink. So when you're out training, like that's that's a training deployment, thirty day training deployment. So you're not, we don't bring alcohol with us, and like you're not supposed to drink. Like we got to drink those days, and when you're on that twelve hour pass, but yeah, you're not. Like when we go to different countries, we don't bring alcohol. So like, it's not a part of our supply structure anymore. If you go back to Vietnam, like they actually ship beer over there, 
Like, we don't do that anymore. But the old, other armies still do. Like, Canada, Australia, all them, they bring beer with them. <laughs> and they can wow. go. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. What was what was your experience like as far as their military culture? Um, very different. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah, very different. A lot more relaxed. Everyone's was much more relaxed. Uh, I remember, so, like, the big thing was this large town, and they actually had Afghani um, actors there. They were, and they, you know, spoke Arab or not Arabic, what was it, Pashto. So they actually are in these villages and you'll go in and they did like a mock kind of, not battle, they did like a, we call it a mass casualty event. So like there was a riot and they, uh, IED went off, killed a bunch of people. So we'd have to go in and treat them and then you're kind of attacked. So we kind of switched off and on and do it. So like the British supported us on the outside, we went in and then you just switch. Well, the British on theirs, I forget what time it was, <laughs> like mid-attack, they literally were sitting there, and ours didn't take that that long. We're sitting there like, what are these guys doing? And then they come over to the radio, like they, they took a break, they're having their tea time. And they, I mean, they <laughs> no. literally, I swear to God, I I wouldn't believe it unless I was there. I mean, we literally, we're sitting there for hours, and we're just guarding in the trucks and kind of doing whatever. Like, yeah, they, they kind of took a break and are doing like this tea time. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's the most British thing I've ever heard. <laughs> That's, That's what they yeah. said over the radio. I didn't confirm it. I didn't walk over there, but that's what they told us. I don't know if they were joking or what, but <laughs> but other than that, they are very more relaxed. So we actually trained with the Japanese army came to Fort Lewis in Washington State one time to train. And all they wanted to do was just get drunk the entire time. These guys <laughs> partied and drank the entire time. They did some training here, there, and then they're just drunk the rest of the time. We played softball with them for like five days straight. We just played softball and we were out in a training area. We're not, we couldn't drink and they were just getting drunk the entire time. <laughs> I'm not surprised to hear that the mili- that the United States military is the strictest and most serious <laughs> at all. Uh, well, yeah. at that time, too, you know what I mean? We just got done two major wars. You know, British sent some guys. Canada was there. But, like, we really were still training because guys are getting ready to either they just got back or go back to one of these countries. So we just had a different mindset, I guess you could say, because right. we were actively in two wars. But, yeah. Was New Zealand uh, in there at all? In the, did they actually deploy to Afghanistan or Iraq? I don't know specifically. I believe so. I know there's Australians in um, there's Australians in Iraq. I know that for sure. There's British. There was a British guy when we were in Afghanistan. He was part of a it's called a Tigers Force. So which is crazy. One British soldier with 25 Afghani uh, Tiger Force guys. And he's an advisor for them. He showed up and they helped us in the area for a while because they go where like the heavy fighting is. And that was one of the most well-trained, well-run Afghani units I had ever seen. And he wasn't like special forces or anything. He was a British paratrooper, paras they're called. And he spoke English that you could not understand. (laughs) (laughs) 50% of the words that came out of his mouth were some type of British slang. He was awesome. And he was just happy to be around America. Someone who spoke English and Americans for a while, so he could kind of let his guard down, and he was hilarious. <laughs> but like fifty percent of his words are just like I don't know what you just said. I got the the gist of it, but like half of the words we don't use. <laughs> he was cool though. <laughs> That's great. So, what about any future plans? Are you? I I remember when we were uh, in Nashville for Bob's bachelor party, you were considering staying in the army and going to 
uh, different track. Are you still in the army or did you uh, get a different job? No. So I actually took my last three years. I was actually on recruiting duty. Everybody has to do it once you hit a certain rank, either that or drill sergeant. Um, so I did recruiting duty. My last probably about two years, I just took a hard look. Like, do I want to stay in this and do career? Because by that point, I was at about nine years, something like that. And then I started looking at civilian jobs and school. I started doing college online. And just after like two years of, of just pondering what to do next, I decided to get out. A big part was family. You know, I ended up recruiting out of the office I joined out of. So my family's everywhere and just kind of got to the point. I was like, I don't really want to leave again. So that was a that was a big factor. Friends, too, right? You don't want to leave your friends either. Sure. But you guys, yeah. I mean, <laughs> by that point, the ones I talked to, like Aunt and some other guys, like they were basically family by that point. You know what I mean? I, I had been away for so long, all like old acquaintances and stuff. If I seen them out and about, hey, how you doing? But like people I kept in touch with, they're usually so close. Those pretty much family people anyway. So yeah, and I would imagine if you're if you're still recruiting and you're traveling all over the country, I'm sure Bob would be willing to go travel to see you. Yeah, recruiting duty, which is insane. It changed halfway through, but my first year, you could take two weeks of vacation every quarter of the year. <laughs> Whoa, unbelievable! You essentially, two months off for yeah. Every quarter. Now they changed it to, which wasn't even much less. They wanted you to only take a week, but you could still take max up to 10 days, I believe, or something. So I started to take less. But that first year on recruiting duty, every two weeks, I was traveling around the country to visit friends. I was going to music festivals all over the place. I was, it was amazing. <laughs> That's how you were doing it. Yeah. yeah. You, you went all over the place. You went to Vegas a few times, right? Yeah. The Vegas a few times. I went to Mardi Gras. Two years in a row, skipped a year, went a year again. Oh, man. <laughs> um, Vegas, I went on hunting trips down in Arizona. Like, it's just, I mean, anywhere I knew somebody, I went to Washington State a couple times. I mean, if I knew somebody there, I went to Italy with family for a week. So, yeah, I just kind of enjoyed some being back in the States for an extended period of time. If you would have ended up in Washington, I definitely would have came out there and visited you. We've talked about that state already a bunch. It's it's one of my it might it's between Colorado and Washington I think as far as my favorite state goes. Um, it's it's unbelievably beautiful. When I first got off the plane and it was dreary and you couldn't see much, but once the first day of like sunshine, I mean you literally do a three sixty view in the middle of Fort Lewis and there's just mountains everywhere. I mean Mount Rainier is ten thousand foot mountain and that's you can see it almost constantly. But then I didn't realize like you look all over and there's like a mountain man, I believe it's the Cascade Range, and it like yep. encircles you pretty much. It's uh, pretty amazing. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, all right. So, Mike, in closing, I just I think I have one more question for you. So, you know, with your your military career, I'm just really curious to hear how your perspective of just the world and countries and how they all work has now changed. It just opens my eyes that it is extremely different. You know. I think as an American growing up, you're just like, oh, I guess everybody's kind of like us. And it's not like that at all. I mean, even in Germany, you know, it's just cultural differences. I mean, you go to a bar in Germany and you look over and there was, there was like a, he had to be, I know 16's like the rough age, I believe, but this kid looked like he was 12 years old and he's just drinking beers. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like culturally, 
all over the place is just so different. Um, that was one of the things that kind of opened your eyes that there's a whole nother world out there. Everybody doesn't do it the same way we do. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And for, for perspective, if anybody's in high school or if they're looking for a career change and feel the same way you did about wanting to be a part of something and to test themselves, would you recommend going into the army, the same path you did? Extremely. You know, even on recruiting duty, I would tell people, you know, you got to want it. If this is something you want to do, you know, start looking into it and pursue it. You know, if it's something you're kind of doing, I want to curse, but I don't really, but half ass, which I had some people who came and talked to me and said, listen, you're, you're not going to like it because it is beyond physical labor. Everything's physical. Just walking in 60 pounds of kit sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it is, you need to be motivated to do it, to be successful <clears throat> because it is one of those things that not just basic training, but even when you get to your unit, you know, it could make or kind of break you a little bit. And I, I've seen the, the opposite happen to some people who just can't hack it and they end up getting kicked out or something. And that'll really destroy your kind of self-esteem or to really make you and help build you up. So when you go into it, you really just got to be 100%, but I highly recommend it. It did everything. Before I joined, I was not a contributing member of society is how I would put it. And then nowadays, it's completely different. I mean, when I was on recruiting duty, I would go and just talking to people, even in civilian clothes, you know, I had job offers just constantly like, hey, we love your passion, your motivation. You know, would you be interested in coming and interviewing for X job or something like that? And before that, I mean, I had people probably telling me to get off the premises of their building, of their company, whatever. So <laughs> it was a complete, complete difference. But that's what I remember coming home after basic and my dad was just looking at me. He's like, you changed. And I was like, I still feel the same, but he's like, something changed. So yeah. definitely helped. Yeah, you couldn't go to, you know, through those experiences and come back the same person. That's just not how it works. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Not. You came back pretty awesome. We're close friends. And, you know, I guess we've rec we've told this to a bunch of our guests. Anytime you're in Philadelphia, let us know. But since you're right here, I'm just going to say you and I should probably go out sometime soon. Hit up, <laughs> go out in Philadelphia <laughs> and have a few beers. Next time Elliot's around. <laughs> yeah. Since you had the kid, it's been tougher. I know. It has it's been extremely yeah. busy. I am right now. I'm in chem right now. And this is the first class I've had where I'm like second guessing my ability to handle college level courses. <laughs> what is it? Chem? I got a 3.8, but this class, like I'm just studying the same things over and over again. They're still not clicking. So I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah. Hey, remember what you said earlier in the podcast? You can do anything now. Yeah, it's yeah, true. Anything. Yeah, except, <laughs> except math and chemistry has a lot of math. I yeah, know. Like, and that's why it's just super heavy. Math just doesn't click with me. Everything else I can get it and study yeah. it, but this one's tough. I'll get it though. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed listening to your insights and your experience being in the service. And I hope to catch a beer with you and Bob sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. This was awesome. All right. That is our show for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, it was really quite incredible to hear the transition that Mike made from being a United States civilian to an armed forces member. Uh, going into war is still one of those experiences you really cannot relate to if you've never done it. Like No matter how much you try, it's like a guy trying to imagine giving birth and we just can't understand it and never really will. Um, but I think Mike's insights got us a lot closer to understanding the emotional and physical aspects of going into war and entering combat. 
Yeah, and I think this is interesting. I mean, everyone on our podcast up to this point has discussed their travel experiences through work or for pleasure. And Mike's travel experience is unique in that his tr- that traveling was not his ultimate goal. He wanted to serve his country, and that meant leaving his country to go into an area of the world in open conflict. And part of that service was getting to know the culture and geography of the Middle East. So, I mean, it was incredibly exciteful, insightful. And thank you so much for your service, Mike. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to do our quick rundown of stuff at the end, ratings, and follow us on our, all of our social medias. Reach out, more jibber-jabber. Uh, again, Mini Havana memories, collaboration, and thank you for listening. We really appreciate your listenership. Mm-hmm.